some of you maybe, I'm looking around, maybe not, but some of you may not remember that in uh, October and November and one Sunday in December, we were studying a passage of scripture that has to do with head coverings of women when praying and prophesying. And um, I think probably when the Apostle Paul in some of his letters talks about how he's doing and where he is and what he's struggling with, that it's good for you to have some empathy and maybe even something bordering on sympathy for the men that preach to you and that we do our best to bind your hearts to us and that we use everything, including the kitchen sink, to do that so that when we feed you, it goes down smoother because you love us. And so let me try to do that a little bit. (laughs) I know that's weird, but bear with me a second. Um... There is a famous man in the reform world, and his name is R.C. Sproul, all right? And I have never been a uh, fanatic for R.C. Sproul, and by that I mean I have not had my Sunday school classes using R.C. Sproul tapes and videos, and I don't have R.C. Sproul books in my living room to, to, to show everybody that I'm an R.C. Sproul fanatic. But I will tell you this, that there are very few public leaders that I love. And I love R.C. Sproul. And I love his son, Junior. And I love his wife. Through a number of things that happened a number of years, 15 years ago now, 14, 13... I ended up working with R.C. Sr. and spending a weekend with him and his wife. And his wife is uh, salty. Um, she could, she could, I recognize a kinship to the Baileys. You know, a, a wit, a, a sort of uh, impious humor, uh, not taking oneself seriously is the way we would describe it. You would be scandalized by it, but... Um, I like the two of them together. I can see how God perfectly matched R.C. and Vesta. They're just perfect for each other. And um, so I say I'm not a fanatic. I don't have his books and his videos and all this crud. And he's very famous. Most of you have heard of him. Some of you haven't. Um, But I know him personally, and I love him. And I love the way R.C. has stood for God when all of the evangelical church was trying to make common cause with Roman Catholicism, R.C. would not stand for it. And generally, I love men who publicly are willing to put their reputations on the line for Christ because I think that that's something that postmodern men are almost incapable of doing. And so when one does it, you have two choices. You can either call him a monster or love him, and I choose to love such men. Now, about 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, we did something unusual in our home, which is that we began to read a book in family devotions other than the Bible. So we'd read a short passage, a chapter from the Bible, and then we'd read from this book. And uncharacteristically, it was a book published and written by R.C. Sproul. 
And the name of the book was, Now That's a Good Question. And it's just these little short pages of him answering questions that people ask you. And it's R.C. at his best. And so we just began to go through. And it was so helpful. And the thing I love about R.C. is that he's just matter-of-fact. He just tells it like it is. He doesn't try to stroke your ego. You know, he's not cloying. He just boom, 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 boom. And that's the way my mother was. And so I'm acclimated to that. You know, Mud, I just love Mary Lee. Oh, Tim, you don't know what love is. You know, that's my mother back when I was in love with Mary Lee in high school. You don't know what love is. And so I recognize R.C. You know? One night, we came on a question. We read one question, one answer a night. One night, we came on the question. The question was, uh, what do you think about head coverings? And I didn't know it was in there. And so I was fascinated to read his answer. And his answer was, my wife wears one. Next question. (laughs) And knowing Vesta and RC a little bit, and thinking of Vesta wearing a head covering, I was like, whoa, yikes. And I'll never forget reading that. It was like, What do you think about head coverings? My wife wears one. Next question. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Next question. Then, sometime in the last year, there was a discussion of head coverings in which somebody said, and this is on the internet, you know, that weird place where that comet came out of over Russia recently? You know, it came from the internet. Did Did you all know that? Yeah, that's why nobody knew it was coming. Nobody knows where it went, but it was the internet. And, and so on the internet, that weird place where meteorites originate, I was reading and I read somebody saying that Vesta didn't wear a head covering anymore. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I was a little bit disappointed by it, you know, but I thought, well, you know. And then, I don't know who it was, I think it was R.C. Jr., maybe it was R.C. Sr., maybe it was in a publication, I don't know where it was, but somewhere I read the clarification that, no, in fact, my mother does still wear a head covering. And then R.C. Jr., who's going to be coming here soon to speak, all right, he said something like, my wife used to wear a head covering, he lost his wife a little over a year ago, I believe. And, uh, and he said, um, I don't see what the big deal is. Now, now listen. Are all of us self-aware enough to know that he's pulling our leg? I mean, any man in this world today who says anything about head coverings and says, I don't see what the big deal is. He's just a flat-out liar. (laughs) He's a liar. Right? But here's the deal. He never... I don't think, I don't know, I haven't asked him. He never has preached through the book of 1 Corinthians. 
And it's one thing to have a book that you write and send off to a publisher and then sometimes, somehow, they print it and then people have it in their living rooms and you're not there. I used to tell my dad, you know, Dad, the difference between you writing books and articles and me preaching is that when you get people all hot and bothered, you never have to see them. But when I get them all hot and bothered, I then shake their hands and hug them. (laughs) And it's a completely different life to be a writer and a speaker than it is to be a pastor. And so here we are in the book of 1 Corinthians. And we have arrived. We have arrived at 1 Corinthians 11. And 1 Corinthians 11 is about head coverings. So I don't have the option of being nonchalant and lying through my teeth and saying, I don't see what the big deal is. (laughs) If you were to be in my place right now looking out at you, trust me, you'd see what the big deal is. (laughs) Hey, um... Brian, would you go to my office and bring in the white thing that's in my office, please? (laughs) So, the issue of head coverings is a very tense issue. And I am always of the conviction that where there is tension, that's where you really want to focus. Most people are of the conviction that where there's tension, that's where you really want to turn away. But my conviction when it comes to the Word of God is it's the place of tension where the Holy Spirit has his finger on us, has our number, and that we need to listen very carefully there. Does that make sense to you? It's the place where the inspired Word of God makes us tense and argumentative and nasty that we better focus. Now, I don't know that I've done this more than twice in my life, but I'm about to quote D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody says that it's the place that's the thickest wall of your heart against God that the Holy Spirit always focuses on. When I was ready to preach this sermon a few weeks ago, a man in this congregation who loves me very much gave me a gift, and this is it. And he said, your next sermon, put this on and go for it. All right, I have it on, I'm going to go for it. And so, every word of a verse every phrase of a sentence, every verse of a chapter, every chapter of a book, every book of the Bible, every single one that causes you to be angry, to want to argue, and to dismiss, where you wish that it would shut up is where you need to focus your attention. If you spank your child, and your child has a stiff neck when the spanking is over, the next spanking should come immediately and should be much harder. Do you understand that? Because now we're not just dealing with her slapping or biting her little brother. (laughs) Now we're dealing with her defying the order of authority that God has established. And instead of submitting to her mother after the spanking, she is angry at her mother. 
And that is the time where you need to present a picture of the judgment seat of God that is coming. You understand me? Not because you're insecure. <laughs> Not because you feel so personally rejected. <laughs> no. Because the one thing every child needs is to have a, a picture of the authority of God. So that when they get to the judgment seat of God, there will be no shock. They will know it's coming because you as a mother were faithful to present the authority of God to your children. Are you with me? And so what we do in life is we find those places where we stiffen our neck against God's word because his word is him speaking directly. We find those places and we say, oh, oh, oh I better focus here. And those places that just go down real smoothly. You know what I'm saying? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green. He restoreth my soul. Thy rod and thy staff, they come. That might be a place to focus. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me? <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. The thing that you use to, like, you know, grab the neck of the sheep and pull him back or, or hit the wolf with, those are a comfort? No, 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 that can't be in Psalm 23. This is for the bedside when you're dying. You see, take the place in Scripture that is most against the grain of your twisted culture, your twisted mind, your twisted heart. Focus there. And by all rights, by all... Universal testimony, 1 <laughs> Corinthians 11 is such a place, right? It's completely contrary to every wicked inclination of our culture and of you and me, right? And so when R.C. Jr. says, well, I don't see what the big deal is, he's lying through his teeth. Now, what he means is actually true. What he means is, once you become a Christian, I thought you were someone who had promised to take up his cross. And once you've promised to follow Jesus by taking up your cross, how big a deal is it to talk about women and men, really? I mean, come on, after taking up your cross, sexuality is nothing. And after you've decided that you're actually going to forswear fornication and forswear seducing men by showing your body and you're going to forswear being androgynous because God made us male and female. You're going to forswear rebellion as a woman. And you're going to forswear this horror that takes every man today, which is abdication of responsibility for your wife and children. All right. What's the big deal? <laughs> you know, Harry Bloom Myers in the Christian Mind says, look, you all want to complain about all the things Scripture says but the thing that you really should focus on is that it says that we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And if you are so, so horrified by what scripture says, focus there. Because that is far and away the most offensive of everything that's said in scripture. Take up your cross and follow him. And so now we come to 1 Corinthians 11. We hear R.C. Jr. over there, and we see Vesta over here, and she's got a head covering on, and he's saying, I don't see the big deal. And we got R.C. in the book saying, my wife uses one. And we go, are they idiots, or am I? 
because this is like 7-9 on the Richter, 8-2 or 9-5 on the Richter. This is like a meteor out of... Some of you aren't believers. I want to tell you something. Every church that claims the name of Jesus Christ is an assembly of people who have been murderers and adulterers, homosexuals, lesbians, thieves, drunkards, alcoholics, druggies, and even... Proud, and have come to the cross to have it washed by the blood of Jesus. That's why we have this wine, because we drink it so that Jesus, you remember what Peter said, all right, f- fine, then every part of me, <laughs> remember that when Jesus washed his feet? And so that's the significance of this, is that we've been washed in the blood of Jesus, who is the perfect Lamb of God, whose blood is for the forgiveness of sins. So when we come in this place, we're not trying to imprint our demands on this place. We're not trying to get the preacher to preach what our itching ears want to hear. We want the preacher to give it to us straight, buddy. And we want the preacher to not trim. You know what I mean by trim? Back in the days when the government was not stealing money from us, <laughs> they used to have money that actually was worth something. This was before the governments figured out that they could, uh, they could trim themselves. And so the gold and the silver and the precious metals were in the coin and the coin was by standard of the king or the emperor. It was a certain size, a certain weight. But what people would do is they'd take a knife or take something and they'd trim just a little bit off the edge of the coin so that then they could keep what they'd trimmed and pass that coin out around as having full value. Are you with me? And so when I say we as a people are committed to coming in here and to not allowing our pastor to trim... You know, Jefferson took the Bible and he cut out everything he didn't like. And I love that because he's so honest. You know? We don't trim. Okay? We don't trim. So if you're not a Christian, you come in here and what you see is a bunch of people that look otherwise normal. But then things being said from the pulpit that are completely abnormal, in fact, they're monstrous. All right, you see a bunch of children, and you say, I've no, "There's no other place in my life that I see children like this." What's that about? And then you have women saying, "Well, we've decided instead of having a two-income home, so we can have a nice house, we're going to have a one-income home and nice children." And you say, "Well, you know, that's another thing. The children here are actually nice. I've never seen Walmart in in Clearnote." Don't worry, I shop at Walmart. (laughs) This is 
other. This is something you've never experienced before. If you have any expectation that we are trying to be conformed to the world by the putrefaction of our minds, remember what Paul says in Romans, Beseech you, therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, and be not conformed to this world, but rather be transformed, that you can tell what is the good and perfect will of God. So this is a place where every focus of us is on testing and approving what God approves, what he wills. And so the preaching is a time when I hector you. I berate you, I admonish you, I encourage you, I love you. I do anything I can to try to get you to move away from allowing the world to press you into its mold (laughs) and try to get you free from the oppressive, PC, disgusting stupidity that you spend the rest of your life in every week. And it really is stupidity. And I'm not making it up. I read it in Scripture. It says that the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. Okay? And so every week we go through a renewal process of coming under the Word of God, hearing it read publicly, hearing it preached publicly, singing of it, then coming to the table and remembering that we died in Christ and were raised through Christ, that we've been washed by his blood, that we're eating his body, we're drinking his blood, and that one day soon we'll be with him. And when we get with him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? And so, yeah, this is completely different. And so R.C. Jr. is right. It's no big deal. What's the big deal? Now, here is the big deal, all right? The big deal is, if we're going to live for Christ, words are cheap, except the words of this word, okay? Our words are cheap. Don't tell me you're a Christian. Show me. And the fact is, God is pleased to work through flesh, through blood, through chairs, through standing, through sitting, through making love, through fertility and babies, through breast milk, through, through wine and bread, through water of baptism. It's not here today. God is pleased to be worshipped with our bodies and physical things. Do you see this? And if any man just blathers on with his mouth and there's no fruit, there's no tangible fruit, that man is to be silenced because he's blaspheming. Do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And what does that mean? That means you shouldn't blather on about things when there's no flesh, there's no physicality, there's no bread and wine, there's no nothing in your life that's died except you saying, I've died in Christ. That's the reason in 1 John, the disciple of love says, if any man says he loves God but hates his brother, he's a liar. Because how can you love God who you have not seen and hate your brother who you have seen? If any man says he obeys God and he is a woman and disobeys her husband. She's a liar. Because how can you obey God who you haven't seen and disobey your husband who you have seen? Now, he doesn't say that in Scripture, but you understand it's a logical, you know, it's a logical parallel. 
right? Any man who says that he loves God and that he has taken up his cross but has not, in fact, taken on the responsibility of protecting his children from molesters is a liar. Because how can you claim to have taken up the cross that Christ has called you to and you have not been willing to take on the responsibility of protecting your children? And so, yes, this is other and this is not talk. Talk is cheap. This is physical. And so to remind you it's physical, as I read our text this morning, please stand. And you see, as you stand, what are you doing? Are you showing respect to me? Well, in a manner of speaking, yeah. But what are you really showing respect to? The word of God, right? Right? This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators of me, writes the Apostle Paul, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, we have, we've been studying this for a few weeks. This is the fourth time. We took a break in December and January. And we have seen that this text is a text that deals with Bloomington in the ancient world, that Corinth was a very wicked city. If you have a church where a man is living with his father's wife sexually, Obviously, the church isn't in good condition. If you have a church where people are getting drunk when they take communion, they're making a, a show of their ability to buy wine and good wine, you know. It's not a healthy church, right? It's got serious problems, but it is the church of Jesus Christ. 
And so Paul's dealing with a bunch of different problems in this church. Now he gets to the problem where, because it's always our habit to be rebels, there's rebellion in the church. And this is not the rebellion so much of the children against the parents or the servants against their masters. It's not a rebellion against the civil magistrate, the emperor and his you know, centurions or Herods or whatever. This is a rebellion in the home and in the marriage of the home, where what we have is women who are scandalizing the assembly by not wearing a covering on their head. And the Apostle Paul's saying to them, you guys, you guys, you guys, you guys, don't you know and don't you know and, I mean, come on, just look at hair length. You see, I mean, heads are, heads really mean. You guys, you guys, you no, 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 you can't, you can't do this. No, 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 no. I mean, doesn't nature, no, you got, listen, all right, you and we have no other practice. The churches of God have no other practice. Now, all of you have had a father in the home. Recognize that last line, right? <laughs> it gets to the end, and he's done wheedling and cajoling. And he's making a declarative statement, right? We have no other. The churches of God have no other practice. So what was the practice of the church at the time that Paul wrote the Corinthians? Well, the practice was that when men prayed and prophesied, they didn't have a covering on, right? As a matter of fact, he commands them not to have a covering on. What am I doing? I'm prophesying. Why do I have a cover on? I'll get back to that in a second. Okay? And he says to the women, he says, listen, it's wrong for a man to have a cover on when he prays and prophesies. It's wrong for a woman not to have a cover on when she prays and prophesies. Now, Is it contrary to Scripture for me to make a point that this is a scary thing to preach to you about and to use this as a symbol of it? Well, it's helpful because all of a sudden you say, well, yeah, he is disobeying Scripture. But of course you can't think that because then you'd have to have a cover on if you're a woman. So I suppose those of you that don't have coverings on will not object. But what about those of you who do actually have a cover on? Do you object? <laughs> I love you. <laughs> she just rebuked her pastor in public. She made it visible. And of course, that's what you would expect from Ginger Mahoney. <laughs> hey, listen, there's only one other woman that I tease, two other women, and one's Ann Wagner and one's Rita Cuffey. So you stand in good company. So now I'm going to take it off because when Scripture says a man should not have his head covered when he prays and prophesies, I think it actually means something. You know? And so let's, let's not have me wear this. I'll wear it in the door greeting you afterwards. <laughs> All right? 
But let's have it there as a symbol. Oh, no, no, no. We don't need symbols. No, we're so much above that. Symbols don't mean anything. It's your heart. You know? It's your heart. Right? In Galatians 3.28, it says, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. And so when Scripture begins to open up the order of creation, which is that Adam was created first, then Eve. All right? That God was not shocked by what happened. He didn't not notice it. Intentionally, God created Adam first, then Eve, and he created Eve from Adam's rib. You remember that. And so Adam was created first, then Eve, then Eve was created from Adam, not Adam from Eve. And Eve was created as a helpmate to Adam. She was created for Adam, not Adam for Eve, all right? And Adam named Eve. Eve did not name Adam. And when Eve sinned, the fall never happened. The fall never happened when Eve sinned. She sinned first, the fall didn't happen. But when Adam ate, then the fall happened. Why? Because all of the human race was resident in its federal head, Adam. Not Eve, not Adam Eve, but Adam. And that's why scripture says that one man about the fall and Adam. And it never connects it to Eve. Okay? So, Adam created first, then Eve. Adam created, Eve created from Adam, not Adam from Eve. Eve created for the purpose of Adam, not Adam for the purpose of Eve. Adam named Eve. Adam was the one who sinned and the fall happened. Now, I could keep going. Here we know that Eve is the glory of Adam, and Adam, God. And you could just keep going. You know, you could just keep going and going and going on this stuff, right? That is the significance of covered and uncovered heads. That's why it goes on and on saying things like, Man is the image of glory of God. Woman is the glory of man. <laughs> That's why it says it. And it says it to help get it through our heads about what should and shouldn't happen with heads in worship. These aren't ethereal things. These aren't misty, vaporous things. They're really concrete. Head. <laughs> Head. All right. Now, because we have a tendency, whenever we are um, asked to submit to anybody, to think it's beneath us and to take umbrage, to get mad, to, to spit and hack and, and slap and kick and, and you know, do all that kind of stuff, in the middle of this, the Apostle Paul gives us some grace. All right? And here's his grace. He says this. He says, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman, right? And then he says, for as the woman originates from the man, you remember, from his rib, so also the man has his birth through the woman, but it doesn't, you know, that italics is not there, but that's what it means. 
In other words, every single man here today has had the conflict, the combat, a woman in the combat, a woman in combat of birth, to give birth to him. And this is why whenever anybody tells you that men in the past oppressed women and didn't care for them and treated them like chattel, you just look at him and you go, this is the most ridiculous thing in the world. Every man has always loved his mother. You know why? Because she gave him birth. Do you understand that? And then she nursed him. And she cleaned him. What kind of monsters do we think men in the past have been? Every man ever born has loved his mother. It's impossible not to. I just got done warning a mother here to not let her adult son continue to, 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 to be so close to her. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so because we have a tendency to want to uh, feel like we're humiliated when we have to submit, or to be monsters who command people without affection. The Bible tells the husband constantly in Scripture what? To love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the wife has said, submit. The man is told to love. And so here they have a church in the middle of a city like Bloomington where everything is upside down. You know, the mayor's marrying members of the same sex and preening himself on the front cover of the newspaper for his progressiveness. And what he really is doing is he's at that point of a black hole where he's going to get sucked in, never to be heard from again in the wrath of God. And he's making a principle out of getting sucked into that hole where lust ultimately consumes us. Okay? And so this is the world we live in. Everything's upside down. Good is evil. Evil is good. Wisdom is foolishness. Foolishness is wisdom. Black is white, white is black, right? And we make a principle out of it. And so, for instance, the modern woman grabs my hand and tries to impress on me that she's a transvestite. And you go, what? Okay. Years ago, there was this college that was very conceited because it was rich and it was in a, a place of beautiful people, right? which is Southern California. And this college was Christian, in a manner of speaking, decided they were going to open an urban program. And they'd have it up in in an even more enlightened and sophisticated place, namely San Francisco. And so the students would go up to Lone Mountain College, you know, out by the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. And the first thing the professor, who was a very enlightened man, would do is he'd take them down to the streets and show them the transvestites out on the streets. And, of course, it was an eye-opening experience for all these young Christian girls and boys whose parents were paying all kinds of money for the professor to do this to them. Because, my goodness, do you mean to tell me there are things so perverted that I've never seen them before? Well, I guess this just shocks and awes my world. So then I went to visit one of those students, and, and, and sure enough, she took me down to see the transvestites. Bear with me. Now, what did I do with that? <laughs> 
Um, hold on. Maybe it's here. Okay, hold on. Oh, I know. Maybe it's here. Well, I'm sure it's here somewhere. Just be patient, please. Yeah, here it is. Now, this is God's word, right? So, so stand. This is God's word. Listen to this. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. All right, now be seated. Are transvestites new? What are transvestites? They're an abomination to the Lord our God. What constitutes transvestitism? Well, a whole host of things. <laughs> but in Corinth, for her to not wear the covering that her sex showed their sex by wearing was a form of transvestitism. You understand? That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you're a woman, and so cover your head. You're a man, so don't cover your head. And so for a woman or a man to wear the opposite sex clothing is just simply a very old sin known as being a transvestite. And every time we try to fit into the world, what's going on is that the world is compressing it into its mold, right? And that mold is always transvestitism. Because the world today does not want to make distinctions. The world wants to muddy everything up so nobody has to have the weight of their being. So men don't have to carry responsibility for the wife and children, and women don't have to carry the responsibility of submission. And so you blur everything up, you muddy it, and then you claim that it's white. And that's the nature of the church today. So what's going on in the world is that you have a mayor on the front cover of our paper, and he's proud that he's just married seven or eleven couples of the same sex, flaunting the order of creation that God has made for all time, for all people. It's not a private Christian revelation, all right? And if you have a mayor like that, and then you come in the church, would it make sense to you that you'd have women serving communion? Would it make sense to you that a woman would read scripture, that a woman would preach, that she would be an elder? Would it make sense that you'd have men working in the nursery? Would it have sense that the women would squeeze the snot out of your hand like Mike Bowles? And men would be... Yeah, that's what makes sense. So what the church... In Corinth and what the church today, both of them together, are transvestite. What we're trying to do is deny our sex, deny the signs, hide it, not teach it, mix everything up, and then act as if it's fair, it's enlightened, it's progressive, it's contextualized, it's missional, it's gospel-centered, <laughs> you know? Of course, you have to have the lie be real big, so you have to claim the name of Jesus Christ for what you're doing. 
And so you want women to be all they're meant to be. And so that means we want women to serve you communion. Now, never mind the fact that these things have never been heard of in the history of the church. Why? Well, because God has always intended the sacraments to be owned by the officers so that the officers can tell you no. But of course, if you take the men away from the table, then you don't feel like there's any chance anybody will tell, take you, tell you no, even if the women who are serving here are actually elders and pastors who are ordained women. You still don't really need to worry about those women telling you no. Trust me, I've worked with women pastors and elders. Trust me, I have a wife. And listen, men are always scarier than women because there's always just a slight chance in your home that a man might say no to you. And with most women, other than Joyce Huck, there's not a chance in the world that a woman will ever say no to you. <laughs> All right, Therese too. <laughs> All right, we have a bunch of women in this church actually who, who would actually say no quite. But you get the point. You get the point that God has put authority intrinsically, integrally in men. You get the point. Don't you, don't you know that that's the meaning of the fatherhood of God? Okay? And so we as a church are supposed to say, okay, you know what? I've been out in the mud and I've sweated and there's so much sweat that I, all I can taste is salt. And I can't see through my eyes and... Down there, it's just grabbing me, <laughs> you know? It's just like all knotted up and grabbing me. And my socks are muddy and dirty, and my shoes are covered with filth. And so I am going to, I am going to take a shower because I have absolutely had it with everything being filthy. And so the homosexual man comes to the body of Christ. And he says, wash me, Jesus, wash me. Wash me, Jesus, wash me, wash me. And everybody looks at him and says, dude, you done been washed. And then they kiss him. The men, particularly, kiss him. And there's nothing erotic and he looks at it and he says, whoa, this isn't Craigslist. This is like something other. This is Jesus. And then there are fathers and they have their daughters sit in their laps. And there's no you-know-what going on down there. And the, the daughter's grown up and she says, whoa. Those daughters trust their father. <laughs> and we say, yeah, that's, that's what God intended. God did not intend the father to be a predator. And, and they go, well, you know, I really prefer vomit. And they leave. Or they say... If this is Christianity, I choose Jesus. And then all of a sudden, they have elders who rebuke their husband for not working and providing for them. 
<laughs> Radical thought. And they have older women who rebuke their wives for not submitting to them. And they have people who spend their lives line on line, inch on inch, teaching them the nature of Scripture. And it goes on and on and on. And when they get to 1 Corinthians 11, guess what? They get it full in the face. Everything about the head coverings, the length of hair, everything. You know? And it's really a, a, it's really a very, what's the word? A, um, it's a rough ride. <laughs> because nobody who ever said, I will take up my cross and follow Jesus, ever really meant it. And had any idea what it was to take up their cross and follow Jesus. Because if they had known, they probably would never have done it. Just like getting married and having children. How do you ever know what marriage is going to be like? You have no idea. <laughs> like my wife said after our first baby, nothing we read or saw or did or heard had any, any, in any way prepared me for that. <laughs> and so here we are, and we're going down the road, and there's a speed bump that actually is more like a brick wall. And it's called 1 Corinthians 11. And what it says is that we should live our sexuality out loud because that's what it means to be a Christian. And we shouldn't play games with it and, and be transvestites. We shouldn't do our darndest to try to look as if we're a woman when we're a man and we're a man when we want one. We should sign our sexuality in the way we shake hands, the way we hold chairs, the way we go through doors, you know, that everything we do should try to confess Jesus Christ precisely at the point where it means we have to die to our surrounding culture. And you say, well, but that's not missional. And I say, ah, it is too. And you say, well, no, that's, that's not gospel-centered. That's very evangelistic because what are the people in the world supposed to think? And I say, dude, have you ever looked at what Paul said in Athens? Here's a direct quote. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent. Now, is that perfectly tuned to insult Athenian philosophers? Listen, Jesus said, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. <laughs> you know, does this sound like a missional, contextualized transvestitism? Don't you think maybe that you being a man or you being a woman might have something to do with what the Lord commanded and what we teach and what it means to be a Christian disciple? Right? I mean, don't you think that maybe children in a Christian home should be safe to not be molested by their older brothers or sisters? Don't you think Women that we're courting should be safe and not shot four times. Don't you think men should be safe to not have their wives parade their breasts in front of the world for the paparazzi? I mean, is the church really the one place where sex has no significance? 
Is that really the meaning of Galatians 3.28? Neither male nor female? No. And so here they were, and they thought, you know, in the church, I don't have to demonstrate my submissiveness. <laughs> and I can easily see that happening. Can you? Hey, hey. And so they threw off the head covering. Wouldn't wear it. Nope, ain't going to do it. Don't do that. Nope, ain't going to do it. Ain't going to do that. <laughs> ain't going to do that. Uh-uh. And furthermore, Jesus wants me not to wear it because that will make it easier for people to come into our church. And you know that we need a large church because we have to pay for this building. And that's the meaning of Scripture saying, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You do not tell your mother that you disobeyed her because your father told you to. If he did, he's a fool. But he certainly would not have you inform your mother of that. He will go and tell her that himself. And so, look. We already died. Our life is hid in Christ. No servant is greater than his master. Our entire life is negotiable, right? Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? Do you really want to lie to the world and tell the world that every part of our lives are negotiable as Christians except our sexuality? I mean, do you see anything about this community that makes you think that our sexuality is the one place where we need to give in to this community? (laughs) I hope you're laughing. (laughs) You know, it's absurd. And yes, in this church are many people who have been involved in homosexuality, both men and women, Many people who have molested children, molested neighbors, molested younger sisters. My wife and I just spent a week dealing with a family where the principal molesters in the whole family were the girls, of the boys, of the babies, of everybody. Okay? This is the church. And what we don't do is make a principle out of these sins in the church. What we do is we repent of them. That's what we do. We repent. Because God is holy and we're not. And so we have freedom to repent. And so if we grew up as feminists, as Mary Lee and I did, trust me, and we thought we were so enlightened when we were able to recognize a transvestite, <laughs> what a, what a, it's like, here's a clue the feet. and then the hands and then a certain cut of the jaw (laughs) and the height all right sexuality is an incidental part of our lives it's it's marginal it's borderline it's something that we don't ever think about and we don't ever act on, and it's just way out there in la-la land, sexuality, you know. (laughs) I'm not a man, and you're not a woman. We're just persons, right? 
And so fortunately, we don't have to think often about what Scripture teaches about sexuality. It's such a relief. I mean, it's absurd. Here's an idea. At the very beginning of the Bible, immediately God makes Adam and then sees it's not good for the man to be alone and makes Eve and takes her from him and makes her to be a helper to him. And that's the beginning of human existence. Right? And so probably the Christian life has something to do with Adam and Eve. And so in the church, we honor God with our sexuality. We don't molest the weak. If we do, we're disciplined. All right? We don't cast off our wives when they have stretch marks. Eh? Huh? 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 We're not transvestites. Okay? We live as Christians, as men and women. And part of that is head coverings. And no church of God has any other practice. Now you know that that's just like ridiculous. Because we live in a day when no church has such a practice. (laughs) I mean, there ain't a church on the face of the earth that has head coverings. Now, that's an exaggeration, but only if you're an American, because then the earth is America, right? <laughs> and so we, the imperial we, the, the empire we, the American empire we, we have no such practice. But, you know, why not have a church in Bloomington, Indiana, in Corinth, be the place that teaches everybody else, you know? Why not have us have women who make a principle out of demonstrating their love for the order of creation? Now, you know that I'm lying through my teeth because I've never yet met a woman who loves the order of creation. Well, okay, Rachel. Well, Ann Wegner. Well... All right, Zebra. Well, okay, Shelly. You guys, do you realize this is a church of women who love and adore the order of creation? Do you realize that you couldn't last here a minute if you were a woman who hated the order of creation? You can't last here. Why? Because it's confessional. (laughs) In other words, that's our unity. We all love the order of creation. We all love Adam first and Eve. All of us. There's nobody here that doesn't. Did you realize that that's an identifying mark of this church? Do you know that you would have more success being a flaming faggot in this church than you would being a feminazi. Because the woman would get to you long before the men got to him. (laughs) Why? Because the women here are are very strong. Why are they strong? Because the women here have had to confess their sexuality 
day after day after day after day being hounded by their loved ones for having more children. The women have been hated and mocked and laughed at and browbeaten every day of their lives for having children and for submitting to their husbands. And this is so true that a monster of a woman who normally makes men cringe, named Annie Carell, all right? One time her husband, they come from a family of Christians, and one time her husband, as they were in the car about to get to a family reunion up in Michigan, she said, hey, honey, today when when we're at the table, just pick a time, and I want you to call me Lord, right? And so they were there, and all the, all the Christians were there, the middle-aged Christians, brothers and sisters-in-law and all that. And David says, David, where are you? Would you just tell them that story? It's just so good. But David, we're out of time. <laughs> tell them the story. It's just so good. What'd she actually say? So tell us exactly what she said to you. <laughs> yes, Lord. Now you see that has real flesh and bones. That has structure. That has a skeleton that has, you can touch that and taste it and feel it, can't you? It's not just this hypothetical thing that, yes, I submit to my husband. But when you utter that word, Lord, it's a confession of faith. And so here's how I want to end. What I want to say is, we as a church are a church that's identified as refusing to be rebellious on the issue of our sexuality. We will not have men and women who are married to the same sex, who are members and able to come to this table They can come, but they'll be led to repent, and until they repent, they will not be allowed to the table, right? We will not have proud people able to come to this table. They'll have to repent. We won't have rebellious wives coming to this table. They'll have to repent, and then, of course, they're accepted. And everybody understands pride and rebellion and homosexuality. These things are as old as the hills and three times as dusty. You know, it's just like... Okay, And when it comes to our heads, we will testify with our heads that we're male or female. And if a young man comes in this church and during prayer, he's next to me and he has a hat on, and he doesn't take it off for prayer, I'm, I might talk to him afterwards if he's a son of the church. If he's a newcomer, I might wait a few weeks. Do, do you understand that? And if there's a woman who gets up front and leads us in prayer 
or prophesies, exhorts, I think then I actually will ask her to have a covering on. Because it's so public and so, you know, it's like that soprano that always browbeat our choir director at college church when I was in high school to letting her sing solos. You know, it's like, oh, yikes. And so if a woman gets up to lead us in prayer and prophesying, exhorting, whatever it is, I think we will require her to have a head covering on. Does that make sense? Now, what about you in the pews? What about small group? What about praying and prophesying? Listen, God ordains that his word is written in such a way that it has an unbelievable amount of ambiguity. God ordained this text to be written in such a way that there's an awful lot of it that we don't understand, right? You understand this. For instance, praying and prophesying. What's that about? You can open books and read a hundred different opinions on what the praying and prophesying is and where it happened. Some people think it's any time there's even a meeting in a, in a home. Some people think it's, not, it's only when the church is assembled at the Lord's table because the next text we're going to go into is about the Lord's Supper. And that's never a private thing. It's always corporate worship. Then the whole thing about covering. What is the covering? Well, we as a church will not allow uh, Bella Abzug. Okay? Remember that woman in New York City, the politician? She, she wore these humongous hats. Or Charlotte Zitlow here in Bloomington. Okay? We're not going to have enormous hats. And the reason is that D. Wayne grew up with that and so did Nick. And what they tell me is that until they got to be adults, they could never see the preacher, never see the choir, never see nothing. Because the women's hats kept all the children from ever seeing. Okay? So it's not big hats. <laughs> right? We'll leave them to Dorothy Patterson. Okay, I'm back. Now, the next thing we have to avoid is we have to avoid making whatever the head covering is be a statement of how holy we are and sanctified we are and superior we are to all the other women. And it is the nature of women to always compete with each other. (laughs) Right? Can we all agree with this? All right? And so heads often are, are, are unbelievably competitive. Right? And so we're not going to compete. Doug Wilson says that in his experience in life, there is an inverse correlation between size of head covering and submissiveness. (laughs) That the more a woman has a head covering, that the less submissive she is. Now, that might not be all bad. It might be her attempt to discipline herself with her appearance. It may not be her attempt to signal her superiority to everyone. But it was very interesting. After the first service, we had a, a woman who explained to me that her husband has forbidden her to wear a head covering because he watched a woman in here with a head covering one day get angry at somebody behind her making noise in the service, and she kept turning around and glaring the person down behind her with a head covering on. And, of course, it was a man, or it, it was a masculine thing, that person behind her. And that at some point, several points, as she continuously turned around and glared the person down, her husband told her not to turn around. Now you see the problem, right? There should be some 
some similarity between the thing and the sign. <laughs> you know, in other words, if we're rebellious and we're wearing a head covering and we be a woman, uh, does not compute, right? And so the head covering should be uh, an external of an internal reality, all right? Right? But what we don't want is we don't want women taking it on and off every second depending on how they feel about their husband at that particular moment. <laughs> right? Right? I mean, if I was a woman, I, I would be taking mine on and off every 15 seconds depending on what I was thinking about, you know? And then he did what? And, oh, that was an interesting story. Oh, my husband. You know how your brain just goes around and around and around as you're praying and listening to sermons and stuff. So, no, we don't think head coverings should go on and off as a testimony as to the condition of your heart at a particular time. <laughs> Because if that was the case, nobody would ever come to the Lord's Supper because at this particular moment, they weren't properly discerning the body and blood of the Lord. And God never puts us in limbo like that. Everything we do is by faith. So you wear a head covering by faith that to the degree this is true, praise God, because he alone did it. And to the degree it isn't true, well, I'm going to go ahead and sign it anyhow. Now, what about, what about here today? The elders have put together about four statements. The elders have spent, depending on who's in the meeting, well over eight hours on this now, having intense discussions, writing up statements, all this stuff, right? And we will put out some summary statements of what we believe about this, but I'm, I'm going to tell you that here's the basic principle. The basic principle is head coverings today in God's economy, still mean what they mean in Scripture, even though nobody practices them. But when the Apostle Paul writes, we have no other practice and neither do the churches of God, it's not true today. You understand that. And I would say that to some degree, the places where head coverings are practiced today are often the most hellacious places in terms of submission I had the experience a number of years ago of debating a Fuller Seminary grad in Lancaster, Pennsylvania in the auditorium of the Mennonite Christian School. In that, in that auditorium, as we debated whether or not women should be credentialed, ordained, okay, in that auditorium were probably two-thirds women, and they all had that little doily on top of their head, the white thing. Those women proceeded at a later date to vote to credential women. And when they voted, they all had the head covering on. <laughs> and that's a howler. I told that to, to my Amish builder here when I was working with him. To him and his wife. It, it just, they could not believe it. You know, Symbols have meanings. And so in this church... If you do come up front and you lead in worship or you're in some position where it could be easily seen that you are acting in a way that's inappropriate for the men here as a woman, are you with me? You should be careful to cover your head as a sign to everybody present that you do not mean to usurp authority. Are you with me? Okay. Small group, Sunday morning, your prayer closet when you're praying alone, all those places, 
it's unclear from the text where it does and doesn't apply. It's unclear when and when not when the church assembles. But here's Mary Lee and my personal, uh, what would you say, uh, thing. Or Let me get a little bit of autobiographical, okay? Many years ago, my mother, in a car with Mary Lee and me, said, well, if they're going to tell us we don't submit to Scripture because we don't wear head coverings, then we ought to wear them. It was just my mother being very matter-of-fact. It was in the car in the evening, and she just said that. I've never forgotten that. So a number of years ago, I began to suggest to Mary Lee that maybe she should wear a head covering. And it was amazing. It didn't appear. And so then, I kind of, sort of kind of asked, you know? And I think maybe it, it appeared occasionally, but it wasn't consistent. Is that right? It may, it may not be. I'm not sure. Now, I'm not telling this to humiliate Mary Lee. I want to make a point to you men. And, you know, I really, I really didn't want to do it. But then, I command it. What happens when a command comes as opposed to a request or a suggestion? What happens is the husband takes responsibility. Do you see this? And he has to bear the burden of that head covering. And that's why none of you want to do it. (laughs) You want your wife to just be sanctified without her husband. And you say, are you saying my wife will wear a head covering if she's sanctified? And I say, well, there's a possibility, yeah. But my point isn't about the head covering now. My point is, men, you are called by God in his word to sanctify your wife. That's a direct command of God. He says those words. And so we cannot allow our wives to make this decision without us bearing the weight of the decision. That's what it means to be a man. Okay? And so I want all of you together to decide what you're going to do. And I don't want this to be an individual decision if you're married and have a husband. Now, if your husband isn't a believer, then of course, your husband can't help you make the decision really, right? A couple other things. We do not, um, as a church, want people to enter this church and be struck immediately by the fact that there's no cleavage allowed to be shown here. Do you understand this? Because it's a habit in the world to show cleavage. And so if the minute people come in the church, the immediate thing we do is we say to him, don't show any cleavage, it's like, what? I thought it was coming to church. What we want is we want God to work through us in a gentle way to show the world the meaning of the Christian life. And we want homosexuals and adulterers and fornicators and even proud people to come here and to be loved. And so if we're like the Mennonites and everybody has a doily on, It's pathetic. Remember what I tell you, that when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, 
the more the Holy Spirit works in us, the weirder we get. It's not uniformity. It's not conformism. That's what the world does. All the people in People's Park have to act like they just sat up in a coffin. (laughs) And if you can't pull it off, you may not be in People's Park. (laughs) But in the church, we have people that just sat up in a coffin And we have people that like to skydive, and we have painters. And we have people that like to spend time in people's filthy mouths drilling. (laughs) You wouldn't believe the diversity of the church. And so when it comes to this practice, what we need is diversity, not uniformity. And certainly not conformity to this world, all right? Okay? And so... um, I want to end with an email I got yesterday. Um, there's a man who's about my age and has been a pastor, and uh, he grew up in Grand Rapids. And this man, um, I'm hoping he can help me uh, with some work I'm working on. And so we exchanged emails, and he wrote me after a couple emails, and he's, we've known of each other for years, we've never met. He said to me, Reverend Bailey. So I wrote him back, and I said, would you please call me Tim? And I got this from him, all right? He said, basically, okay, I'll call you Tim. But just remember, I grew up around Dutch dominés. Now, dominé, how would you, those of you that are Dutch, what would you say? Dutch, it's like the name you give the pastor, but it's not pastor, it's not reverend, it's like way up. How would you say it? It's like Lord, spiritual master. Come on, tell me something. What, what would it be? How would it translate? Domine. No, no, no. I'm looking for some English word because pastor and reverend doesn't cut it. Yeah, very high status. Yeah. President what? Your worship, maybe. Lordship, yeah. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Higher than the mayor. Now that begins to get it. And that's true of the Dutch. You know, Robert was in Oostburg and Cedarbrook. We were near Friesland. And that's true. That pastor in those communities. Uh, mm hmm. Yeah. And then he says, but just remember, I grew up around Dutch dominates. I live outside an army installation where addressing people with the correct rank is critical to avoid great offense. And my wife is Korean, which means first names are never used for asterisk, 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 uppercase, anyone, asterisk, 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 except young children. My daughter is required to address me and my wife by formal titles in public. The Christian school reinforces that with Sir, Ma'am, Dr. Canfield, Mr. Wagner rules. And at home, she must use titles in Korean reflecting our family relationships. So if I slip and call you Reverend Bailey, 
please understand, I mean respect for your office, as well as long-standing custom, and please forgive me if I forget. Now listen. A woman, to wear a head covering, is for her to claim her office. But we despise the office of woman today, and so we don't see that as an honor and privilege. But it is. And I don't want this to be a church where everybody makes a show of a big head covering and everybody tries to, you know, maybe cover some of their face too. Because that's Islam. And I don't want us to be a church where the entry point is not showing cleavage and and having something on head. But listen, if we aren't different from the world in some visible way as women, some modesty, some female deference, some change in the way we shake hands, some ability that's special to cry with those who cry, some empathy, some sympathy, some softness, some tenderness, something visible, then what's the sense of being a woman? You know men love looking at you, right? Did did any of you as women get, you ever know that? And you know it's not a function of your beauty, and it's not a function of your age. When we're in private, you know what we say as men about it? This is what we say. We say, she is woman. And that's not an immoral thing I just said. That's woman. And woman is unbelievably potent with men. Woman. And so as a church, let's be woman. And I don't know what women say privately. He's a man. You know, (laughs) you know. If a man speaks in the forest and there's no woman there to hear him, is he still wrong? (laughs) You women, I think, in private just spend your whole time saying what fools men are, you know? Is that right? Am I right? No, I'm not right. My wife tells me I'm wrong. Okay. (laughs) Okay. All right. It's time for us to go to the Lord's Supper. All right? That's all you're going to get out of me. My wife laughs. (laughs) Okay, go on, tell them what you were thinking. (laughs) She was thinking, dude, you just went on an hour too long. Is that what you were thinking, love? And I'd be a real fool as a pastor if I wasn't always processing everything I do through the judgments of my wife, including how long I preach. She's helpful, and I do love my wife most of the time. Okay, and afterwards, if you have questions, these men have answers written out for every question that you'd have, <laughs> and, and so they're just, they just want to be helpful. Okay. How many hours? Eight hours, wouldn't you say? That's what Adam said. Would you say more than that? You'd say ten. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, let's hear the words of the institution. And when we come to the table, don't come thinking that you merit this table. Don't think that you're good enough this week. So many of you do that. You're never good enough, and I'm never good enough to come to this table. We come to this table to be renewed in our faith and in the washing of the blood. That's the purpose of the table. And so homosexuals and even proud men are welcome to this table, and the blood of Jesus Christ does what? Cleanses us from all sin. So don't be timid. Come to the table. Come to the table. Dearly beloved, hear the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ as they're delivered by the Holy Apostle Paul, who wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, and this this is where we're headed next time. All right, same chapter. He says, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, And he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. And after the same manner also, our Savior took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink of it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's bow in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who admits your people into such wonderful communion that partaking of the body and blood of your dear Son, they should dwell in him and he in them. We unworthy sinners, approaching your presence and seeing your glory, we hate ourselves and we repent in dust and ashes. We have grievously sinned against you in our thoughts and in our words and in our actions. We have broken our past vows. We have dishonored your holy name and we are unworthy of the least of all your mercies. Yet now, most gracious Father, have mercy upon us for the sake of Jesus Christ. Forgive us all our sins. Purify us from all uncleanness in spirit and in flesh. Make us able heartily to forgive others as we ask you to forgive us. And grant that after this we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your holy name. O Lamb of God that takest away the sins of the world. O Lamb of God that takest away the sins of the world. O Lamb of God that takest away the sins of the world. Grant us thy peace. O God, who by the blood of your dear Son has set apart for us a new and living way into the holiest of all, give to us, we ask you, the assurance of your mercy and sanctify us by your Holy Spirit, that drawing near to you with a pure heart and undefiled conscience, we may offer to you a sacrifice in righteousness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. One last pastoral word to you. Every single week, many of you confess horrible sins to us, right? That's the nature of the ministry. That's why the elders are given to you, so you can confess sin to them. And then your inclination is to say, well, I just confessed horrible sins to them. I can't come to the Lord's table. 
I'm not worthy. The worthiness that God requires of you is that you realize that you have no worthiness and that you look for your worthiness to Jesus, to him, to him. And so I can imagine this morning that, you know, many of you as women are thinking, well, I don't like being a woman, and I don't want to submit. And here's my pastoral response. Duh! That's why Scripture tells us what to do. (laughs) Because we don't want to do it. And so don't hesitate to come to the Lord's table. Just ask God to take away your desire for immorality, for rebellion, whatever it is. Just ask God to take it away and bring your sin to the Lord's table. Bring it, okay? But don't come here if you have not crossed the river to faith in Jesus. This is for Christians. This is not for those who are still being conformed by the world, okay? You should be in process of being sanctified. All right, come and let's eat.